it's an interesting dynamic, the way that our harms are attributed to substance use, but really it's so many socially constructed harms that impose them on the bodies of people who use drugs. You can't have any sort of therapeutic alliance in an environment where everything's centered on surveillance and punishment. So I learned quickly, you can't talk to those people. This is the only study showing that people use drugs experience like stigma and abuse in medical settings. Pretty well documented that there's a lot of stigma in medical care towards people who use drugs. But man, it really drove it home, like how little they care and how much this is a business model. It's not anything else. <laughs> You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Harm reduction programs like syringe access, supervised consumption, or even just handing out condoms on the street can be some of the only access to health care some people encounter. Some, but definitely not all, but some people who use drugs routinely shun going to the doctor, not because they don't care about their health, but because our for-profit healthcare system treats almost everyone who uses an illicit substance like complete shit. Why would you go to a healthcare provider for an infection or an injury if you're going to be lectured about your drug use, even if it has nothing to do with why you're there? Or you might be forced to hand over your urine or have your possessions rifled through by a cop. I mean, nurse. Even for people that don't use illegal substances, our healthcare system is a nightmare to try and navigate. It only gets worse if you happen to self-medicate or enjoy chemicals that aren't sanctioned by the FDA. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. On this show, Narcotica co-host Christopher Marath just did an episode all about how doctors need to work harder to rebuild the patient-trust relationship. And many medical professionals are doing that work, which makes such a huge difference. It's hard to understate how valuable it can be to receive non-judgmental medical care that doesn't hinge on absolute abstinence. That episode, number 65, which we encourage you to listen to after this one, came from the perspective of two amazing doctors, Ashish Takrar and Ben Koshiaro. However, on this episode, we want to talk to someone from the other side of the aisle to get a different viewpoint from someone with lived experience in this area. Of course, stigma from doctors and nurses is only part of the equation. Legalizing or at least decriminalizing these drugs is crucial to removing the excuse that medical professionals can mistreat people who use drugs in the first place. But before we get to that, some important info about this podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and more, plus all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I guess not TikTok, because we're too old. We'd love to hear from you. Go to narcocast.com to learn more about us. And here's our one and only advertisement. Narcotica is an independent program, and we want to keep it that way for as long as possible. We are listener-supported, just like NPR. So if you want to support us, just go to patreon.com slash narcotica, and then message us. We'll mail you some stickers, or we'll give you a personal shout-out on the show. We just ordered some t-shirt samples. Hope to have those out by the end of February or early March. And that's it. Patreon.com slash Narcotica. It really helps us out, and we appreciate it so much. Thank you to the people who keep Narcotica going on the airwaves. Our guest today is Daniel Russell, a personal friend of mine who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, but she has one killer bio, which I'm just going to read to you now. Russell is currently a Justice and Social Inquiry PhD student at Arizona State University, where she studies how the criminalization of substances used for personal pleasure has become a key issue and tool for social control, contributing to the ongoing legacy of racialized criminalization and mass incarceration in the U.S. Having personally experienced many of the harms that impact people who use illicit drugs, she is passionate about mutual aid and working to change the structures that impose harms on the bodies of drug users. 
Her research interests are oriented towards community-based participatory research. Danielle, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. So I know a little bit about your personal history and everything, um, but for people who don't, like, who are you and all that good stuff? You're not originally from Arizona. Where are you from? So I moved here to Phoenix when I turned 19, and I'm 37 now. So basically been in Arizona almost as long as I spent growing up in Alaska. But I moved here. I've been working in environmental lab since high school. Um, and then I had the opportunity to transfer for work down to a lab here in Phoenix. And yeah, I wasn't going to pass up that chance to get some sunshine in my life and out of the Arctic cold. This is totally up to you, but do you want to go into a little bit of your personal drug history? Because I know we've talked about it before and I, I find it interesting and I really like value your perspective on things about this because you have a way of articulating some of the ways that, uh, well, this drug war is really a war on people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's so, it's definitely brought me to the work that I do now and want to do in the future. So um, even when I lived in Alaska, even in high school, you know, I just experimented with a lot of drugs, but it was mostly, mostly for like fun, like raves, because it's the nine, like, you know, nineties and stuff. So going to raves and so ecstasy. Well, wait, wait a second. Can I interrupt you for just a second? Like what's a rave like in Alaska? <laughs> you know what um the scene was probably I mean I can't really compare it on here even though I live near Rawhide so I hear the raves it sounds the same that same baseline <laughs> but uh I did see I did get to see Crystal Method in concert in Alaska weirdly enough so eh, you know yeah yeah I bet it's just a little bit colder but basically the same thing I mean Phoenix used to be like the rave capital of the of the country for a while i didn't go to a lot of them but like i guess just because it was so big and they have them so spread out and everything there's just a lot of that going on you know what that would probably be a big difference is they were indoors so it wasn't like outdoors it was usually in like a indoor venue anyway i interrupted you so you can go on <laughs> yeah. um i did start using heroin kind of like intermittently when i lived up there and like, I probably like enough that I thought like I could get sick when I stopped using, but, and I thought it was like, it scared me and thought, oh, I have a problem. But as I learned later, I really just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg of what like a problem could be. <laughs> Cause I was I, like, on reflecting back. It's like, I was still a tourist at that time uh, to heroin. And then I moved down here thinking, okay, I'll try to like, maybe stay away from that. But then just uh I had moved down with my boyfriend at the time but we broke up pretty quick and he went back to Alaska and then I stayed here on my own I moved into an apartment over in south side of Phoenix around like 40th and southern area and so like most of my neighbors were using heroin and like smoking crack and stuff so I had more access to drugs again and I was alone so I just uh and I, you know and I was working a lot I started to not like my job as much and I guess I've always kind of put a lot of my person, like my self-worth in my job, maybe more than I should. Like I started to feel disappointed with like my career too, because I never went to college. Most of the people that work in the lab with me all had at least bachelor degrees. And um, I was trying to take some classes as well, even at that time at the community college and even walking there because I didn't have a car either. So I'd walk to and from work every day. And then I would have to walk to South Mountain, which was pretty far away. And I had this really well-intentioned teacher too, because I remember she 
she told us to write out our classes like from that semester onwards until graduation to plan it out how we would graduate. And when I did that with my taking one or two classes every semester, which was all I could afford with my job and working full time, I realized it would take me like eight years to get a biochemistry degree. So I was like, fuck. So I just felt more hopeless. Anyways, I was like, it's just like a confluence of a lot of things. And I, so I started using a lot more heroin like all the time, you know, and then it quickly became a daily thing. I would, I couldn't really get syringes either because this, it was like a lot harder to buy syringes back then. It was like, God, like what, 12 years ago? Time's such a slippery thing, but um, it's easier to buy syringes now at pharmacies, but then it's like, you would usually get turned away. So I would steal the syringes from my job, which were meant for oil and fuels and stuff. And it's shit, they're like large gauge. I was fixing in my legs. Oh, and I worked in a clean room too. So I'd be strapping on these steel toe boots that they go across your shins and it like cuts off your circulation working 12 hour shifts. And they're like, just like all this kind of trauma to my legs. So it's like, I started to get wounds like open. My legs started to look kind of weird, like swollen and icky. And it wasn't just going away, even though I was like kind of fixing up in my upper legs, not really my lower legs where this issue started occurring. And my feet started to look weird, like changing color. But I was, I was pretty young. I never had health problems. So I thought, you know, walk it off, like whatever, it'll get better until it got to the point where I couldn't even get my safety shoes on for work. Cause they were just like so swollen. So I went to the doctor initially the diagnosis is cellulitis, um, in my lower legs, which was like a kind of not too bad, but like could become serious skin infection. I got like silver sulfadiazine. Um, at that point I was still being treated. Okay. By doctors. It wasn't anything too traumatic that happened, gave me like ointments. And I was like, all right, whatever. Tried to keep working, kept, you know, using drugs. And then it's like, it started to open up more. And I was like, oh, this is like becoming a problem. So I went back to the doctor. And then I remember them like screaming in my face, like, you're going to lose your legs if you don't stop shooting up drugs. And just like, they were really nasty and like scared the shit out of me. And so I was like, wow, like that sucks. But then it felt like more of a reason to keep using drugs. Oh, because they also, that's when I found I had hep C as well. So I was like, fuck, dude. Like it just felt kind of like I had a bunch of health problems just dumped on me suddenly. It's just the, the leg issues really started to kind of go out of control. I think that was in like 2008, because I know I still had medical bills showing up in my credit report that were like dated to 2008. And uh, it's, and my legs are still like that today. But so, I ended up losing my job because I couldn't like I couldn't even get the damn shoes on to go there. Couldn't stand for my shifts. I moved in with my partner now because he's like a great guy and he helped me out. I was really struggling. He doesn't use any drugs at all, but he's like very understanding of like things that I struggle with. Um, so I moved in with him because I didn't have money. I don't have like family support. And uh, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with myself now? So that's how I ended up back in school, weirdly enough, is because I ended up with this like infection in my legs and made it so I couldn't work. And I, so I had to do something else. But yeah, so that, that's like a lot. I'm sorry that's all happened to you. I mean, that shouldn't have happened to you. And it would be so easy to blame all that on the drug use. Right. But it was really like not being able to have the supplies you needed, like syringe access. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I mean. At the time, I felt very guilty and a lot of shame about it. Um, and then it's like, 
the more time I had to reflect on what happened and having seen all the times that I was denied access to sterile syringes all the time, I was like, you know, I've been deliberately blocked from access to evidence-based information about my own body and how to protect myself from these kind of issues. I didn't know that shit could even happen, okay? Like I hadn't seen someone with, I mean, injection-related wounds like mine until much later after I'd had mine. And, and I've, I've certainly encountered a ton more people with like injection-related wounds since then. But yeah, it's definitely, it's an interesting dynamic, the way that our harms are attributed to substance use, but really it's so many structural and like socially, like socially constructed harms that impose them on the bodies of people who use drugs. And then we're blamed when it happens to us. Like I'm a singular dipshit that I had this shitty job working 12 hours a week, which also contributed to it getting as bad as it is now and continues to be, because I don't use drugs now, hasn't healed. So a lot of that damage, you know, wearing those boots for 12 hour shifts, trying to keep working while I was clearly ill, it like it all just snowballed. So it's like so many factors like intersecting that have resulted in this and, and not being able to get access to competent medical care as well, which is like a continuing issue for me now. So just it all kind of comes together and snowballs. Yeah. And it's also, you know, someone who was being critical of you would be really easy to overlook the environmental factors that were contributing to your situation. You know, being isolated like that, doing opioids, that's will make you feel a lot better in that situation. And I, I totally understand that feeling of like, you go to the doctor and they tell you you have all these things wrong with you. And then they make you feel like shit about it. And then it just like, it piles on the despair. And my wife calls it um, a wall of awful. And it's just like, it, it just, you can't deal with it. It's, it's, you kind of shut down a little bit. It's a little bit of paralysis. Yeah. That's what it starts to feel like. I know even at that time I tried to get on methadone initially. And I remember Via del Sol, because it was one place that was kind of within walking distance, not really like I wouldn't consider walking distance now, but even with my injured legs, you know, trying to go these places. And um, back then you had to sleep outside the clinic if you wanted to be one of the few people first in line on one of their intake days to get those slots. And I remember I'd slept outside to try to get in, you know, be one of the first few in line. And even after getting in front of them, the doctor told me that they couldn't admit me to methadone because the methadone would mitigate my physical pain. And I needed to be in pain so that I could like reconcile like my own poor decisions. So I was even being turned away from other resources because I had additional needs. And so after that, I learned not to like, don't speak to, you know, treatment people about my health issues. Like don't talk to them about any of it because it clearly became another barrier. Like they definitely were not like, providing more assistance for those things, it was like another way for them to push you out, which is unfortunate. Cause I see that happen to other people as well. Yeah. It's really fucked up that it's like trying to send a message or punish you for this. Like, I don't understand, like, first of all, totally goes against the Hippocratic oath. Right. I mean, you have non-judgmental care for lots of different conditions. Some of that has diabetes or heart disease or something like that, you know, hope ideally at least i'm not going to say that that doesn't happen or there's not stigma against people that have those conditions but you see it a lot less at least when it comes and then when it comes to people with people who use drugs it's it's like acceptable to just be basically an asshole to people and to give them poor care 
Yeah, it reaches an absurd level because I remember him saying, oh, well, you won't seek help. And I was like, what do you think I'm here for? Like, do you think I just thought this was fun to like sleep in your parking lot and then expose myself to your judgment? Like, what? Why did like, is this not asking for help? Because if, if that's not asking for help, then I really don't know what is. I, so it's like interesting because again, like that kind of instinct that people have to individualize social harms it's like they see you as the failure point instead of like all like all the structural failures that lead to those problems arising in the first place. You're on methadone now. Um, how is that doing for you? Oh, man. Well, I mean, on paper, I'm like a successful like a, I could probably be like a methadone poster child or something because it really, I did, I managed to, I kept trying even after that. I like, I don't know where I got the will to keep trying. I think just cause I was so desperate for some sort of help. I, so I found a methadone clinic that did admit me. I didn't mention my leg issues. I helped. And so gosh, they were just really, they were in like at the time I thought, oh, they're so great because they actually helped me when no one else would. But like looking back on it, they were such horrible assholes to me. I don't know how I made it work with my job and everything. I would have to go up there you know, on my lunch, because I was working shift. So I did have a car at that point, too. So that helped as well, because it was farther from where I lived. Um, but I would be having to go to the methadone clinic, like every day on my lunch, and then rushing back. But yeah, at least they accommodated me in that they kept raising my dose, even though it wasn't necessarily anything I was pushing for, because I think my impulse at the time was I want to keep my dose low, because I just wanted to maintain and still be like, like, my thought process was I wanted the methadone so that I could like have some financial stability, but like still use when I wanted to. And then when they kept raising my dose, I couldn't use the heroin anymore because it was just like, I might as well light my money on fire because I got up to like 256 milligrams a day. And at that point, it's like, it just didn't make any like sense at all to keep using heroin because I couldn't feel it. And, um, yeah. And I didn't feel like high at all, but it, so it's like, it was interesting because then I suddenly felt like I actually had time to do things that I wanted to do instead of just always having to kind of like maintain my habit and then like frantically work habit, work habit, which was what my life was for so long. So that's where methadone was really helpful to me. I really wanted to talk to you about, you know, your experiences being in a methadone uh, treatment program during COVID, like I'll let you tell the story, but it just sounds so nightmarish, like the hoops that they're making you jump through. It's weird, too, because I'm a like, quote unquote, successful client. Like at this point, I had tapered from that clinic where I was at 256. I tapered off. And like in that time, I also went to school, like I went to community college, got my associates, then I got my bachelor's. Um, and then I got my master's and I started tapering while I was doing my master's. So I tapered down, left the clinic right around the time I finished my master's. But then it's like, when I got off the methadone, I was like, fuck, like, is this what my body feels like? It was just like, like shockingly awful. And I wasn't expecting that. And so I ended up going back, which like, I kind of, I feel, I feel a lot of ways about it. But so I went back, but I was too embarrassed to go back to that clinic. They don't offer you any sort of like, you're leaving there's no, it's not a place of like therapeutic support. Basically they're like, here's the methadone. Here's a bunch of bullshit you have to do. It's not like they were offering support, but like, so it's not even like when you leave, they're not like, oh, don't worry. If you ever need help, you can come back. It's more like, well, I remember my counselor even said like, oh, are you good? 
I was like, I guess, like on my last day, I was like, I guess I better be that like, so that's the extent of the counseling, quote unquote counseling that you get there. So I went back to this clinic that I'm at now, or I went and entered into a new clinic, the one I'm at now. And um, I heard from people that it was one that didn't require the counseling stuff as much. And I prefer that because the counseling is fake. There's no, you can't have any sort of therapeutic alliance in a like environment where everything's centered on surveillance and punishment. So I learned quickly, you can't talk to those people. So I would at least prefer not to have that, like just the farce of like pretending that I'm talking to these people. So that's why I went to this one and it's true. They don't really do the counseling, which I appreciate. They just add this stuff into my, I see the charges for it, but they like double up when you speak to the provider and just charge it as counseling. So it's like a five minute, they ask you how your poop is, are you constipated? It's like the same list every month. It's um, how's your dose? Do you want to go up or down? Um, are you homeless? How's your poop? That's the counseling. Wow. Wow. That's really thorough, right? Yeah. It's so it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty icky, but uh, you know, you put up with it because the methadone itself is like a good resource. And the way I see it now is more like safe supply. And it does offer me, it's like such a good mood stabilizer and like pain management as well, which like you can't ever talk to them about either because it can't be prescribed for pain you have to only be using it for like detox withdrawal symptoms and stuff. And like, you have to kind of filter everything through this discourse of addiction for them to hear you at all. But yeah, so that's why I feel like I'm using it more for at this point, but I tapered down again, down to 18 milligrams. And um, so I've been tapering over the past year again, even though I went back on and like, I still stayed at a lower dose, but so COVID hits. And right when COVID hit, I was asking them, you know, right away, because we were hearing all this stuff, like, like dumb stuff in the news, like, oh, the National Guard is going to be delivering people's methadone to them during lockdown. It was like, yeah, it was pretty, like, weird sounding, but it's scary, you know, is this the medication that you rely on? I was still on daily pickups at the time. So, you know, not being a long-term client, but then also it's weird because I had clean, like, clean, quote-unquote, methadone-only positive UAs, so I should have qualified for take-homes even before the pandemic, but they just never gave them to me. And I have my suspicions about why I'll share those later if you're interested. But so the, um, when the pandemic hit, I was like, hey, what are, are you guys going to have any protocols or any changes for COVID? Um, or are we still just expecting to come in every day? Like what's going to happen? Um, they never gave us any clear communication about it, but eventually the providers like disappeared. I remember the first time I came in, for my little monthly meeting with the random ever-changing provider person and the office was empty they've got us coming into the crowded thing waiting in line with each other but their office is empty and it's just their computer turned around facing my seat and i'd heard about the samsa accommodations as well where you know on for unstable unstable clients so paternalistic it's a uh, 14 days take home stable clients can get 28 day take homes so i was like really excited I read about the curbside dosing allowance and I was like, oh, wow, like, when are they going to implement this? And instead, I like saw that they implemented the like telemed stuff for themselves to protect themselves and stay home, but like still have us literally driving across town and waiting in the like wait room together and in line just to like sit in their empty office. So I was like, wow, like they really have no intention of implementing any of this stuff, <laughs> except in ways that benefits their business model and their own safety. So that was disappointing. 
But, um, you know, I even told him like, you know, I have other health issues that make me high risk for COVID complications. I, you know, if I could get extra take homes, I would really appreciate it. I would prefer not to be around other people so much because people in line were even like coughing, visibly ill. Some people would even say like, oh, I've got COVID um, like in line or in the waiting room. So I was like, fuck, like it didn't feel safe, you know? And um, so I was constantly asking like, hey, can I get more take homes? They finally gave me where I was on weekly pickup and then, but still having me come in and then making me come in for like more appointments and stuff. And then in end of October, November, um, right after I'd been at the clinic, like I would say about four days later, I ended up starting to feel sick. And then I had to be back there on like a Tuesday or something. And I, I had like a fever by that day. And it, it like hovered around 103 for like a week, my fever, and like did not go down. So it was pretty scary. Um, and at that point, when I had that fever and I woke up that morning to go to the clinic, I knew I was pretty sick. Um, so I called them beforehand. I was like, Hey, I have a fever. I'm like feeling really sick. I haven't been tested or anything, but, um, like, I don't feel good. Um, can you curbside dose me or bring my doses outside? I've read, this is an accommodation you could provide. They're like, no, nah, you'd be fine. Just come in the clinic and, you know, meet with a provider. So I came in the clinic, they even, you know, ask you to take down your mask when you come in so they can identify you when you're in the room with all the other people so fucking stupid it, it really is and then like for dosing too you're in there with other people the dosing room is pretty narrow and closed off but the workers are behind a plexiglass screen so it's like much of the risk i feel like is limited to clients and then the front desk people specifically who are usually people with lived experience it seems that they hire to man front desk and um well, so then I left, I was pretty mad about that, but I didn't know for sure I had COVID yet, but I went and got tested that very same day. I got a rapid test and came back positive. So I sent an email because my clinic had just got bought out uh, by CMS, like one of the biggest methadones in the state. And they're like the good clinic. And I actually have email contacts for people there, like high up like the CEO. <laughs> so um, I sent an email to them and like the head of the like Southwest division, I think is her position for CMS, the new, the new owners of my clinic. And I said, look, I'm positive for COVID. Um, I was in the clinic um, today, very sick and symptomatic fever. They took my heart rate. It was like 133 while I was resting. Um, so clearly I was like in physical distress as well. And they're having me drive across town while I'm sick as well. Um, so she's, and I said, but they still have me coming in on Friday. They had me coming in so much more while I had COVID too, which is weird because I was supposed to be on weekly pickup, but they didn't give me all my doses for some weird reason. So I had to come back on Friday and I said, I'm scheduled to come back on Friday, but I have COVID I'm sick. Uh, what can you do? So I'm not in there putting other people at risk. I said, I don't feel comfortable going in there with COVID. It's like a lot of people that are really old too. And I don't know what health issues they have. I know a lot of people who are injection drug users have HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis. Like I don't need to be adding more shit to their plate of shit that they've got to deal with, you know? And I didn't say that in the email, but that's my thinking at least. Um, she said, oh, of course, we'll, we'll curbside dose. You just call when you're outside. Like, yeah, we definitely don't want you in the clinic. I show up on, on like Friday and I call and I'm like, hey, um, you know, this is what I was told. I'm getting curbside dose because I'm COVID positive. I sent you guys the test results. Um, they put me on hold. Then the girl comes back on the phone. She's like, oh, the doctor cleared you to come inside. I was like, how did they clear me? Like, I have a fever right now. I'm like sick. 
I have like with COVID, why do you want me in there? And um, she's like, I don't know. Doctor says she's cleared you to come in. So I'm like, okay, like, what do I do? Like, I still need my methadone. I feel like such an asshole too. Cause it's like, I feel like I finally became this like self-centered dope fiend that like, I never felt like I fully was before, but now that I've been in treatment, suddenly I'm making these decisions to put other people at risk for my own like security, getting my methadone. But like, so like, I felt like shit about this, but so like I go inside, they even have me, I'm like really sick too. I was feeling bad that day. And uh, they have me take off my mask for like photos. And I'm like, I have COVID. Like, I don't want to take off my mask. Like, I'm really sick. And like, you know, snot was, it was just sick. Like snot was coming out. I was trying to like keep my coughs in and everything. And uh, they're like, oh, well, we got to take photos. Like, oh my God. And it was like, it was like a bad joke. Cause even when I get, went in the dosing area, I was like, well, you know, I'm like letting everyone know, like I have COVID, like, please just like keep your distance. Um, and you want me in the dosing area. It's like a bad joke because I've got my mask off to dose and they bring some old man in a fucking walker through like, um, like just like so dark. I was like, really? You had to bring the freaking old man with the walker through while my COVID ass is in here dosing? Like, what's wrong with you people? Like, I just, I felt so mad after this experience, like with them, with myself, because like, I did have a choice to like not go. And I tried not to take my methadone while I had COVID because I was like, dude, I'm not, I can't believe they would like put so many people at risk for getting COVID um, and they don't care about us. They put me at risk. I feel like I got COVID there. And if anything, it's weird. It took me that long to get it. You know, I am vaccinated. I just got my booster today too. But so, I mean, I think with that much exposure, it's like not a surprise I got it. Yeah, I, I had a breakthrough case of COVID. Uh, I was double vaxxed with Pfizer and it made it so that I didn't have to go to the hospital and I'm grateful for it. But um, that's a disease I never want to catch again. It was really bad, in, even though I was only sick for a couple of days. So going to a methadone clinic while you're feeling that way and like being obviously contagious, like it, that's just, I want to say it's like a Kafka scenario, but like that it's, it's just beyond that. It's it's more like an idiocracy scenario or something like that. It feels very, it's, I, I, I always tell people it's like, if my, if you'd like, you have to describe your life as a book uh, and like, especially the clinical setting for methadone, I would say it's like a cross between one flew over the cuckoo's nest and like definitely Kafka, like maybe the trial or something. <laughs> Cause it just, it's like the same punishment over and over. And you don't really know why you're being punished or like, I do know, but it's, it's odd and absurd. And it's, if you try to challenge it, it makes it worse. I feel like I've tried to challenge it in so many ways, everything from even like with my purse, them taking my purse every day and putting it in the PB box. And I would try to ask the front desk people every day. Like I would, I would say like, I would try to not give them my purse, even though this was like a routine. And I would always try to say like, do you think that's a nice thing to do? just to see if I could get them to like push back on this, like just these kind of like small cruelties and indignities that they kind of voice on us every day. And it wears you down over time. Like, I think I'm a very confident person, but just having that experience of going in somewhere where you're just being looked at like you're, like you're less than, being treated like you're less than. And even, even like that with the COVID, like the final like cherry on top of this, shit Sunday that they've been serving me for years, I feel like, to then signal to me that our lives are so valueless that, like, even with the COVID thing, you can't give me the 
the decency to bring my dose to my car because I don't want to expose other people to a potentially deadly disease. Like, just like, wow, you know, like, I, I have no idea how they still managed to shock me because I feel like I've seen this so often, but man, it really drove it home, like how little they care and how much this is a business model. It's not anything else. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of brings me, I kind of want to talk about this paper that you were the co-author on that was published in the International Journal of Drug Policy last July, I believe. I don't even want to go to the doctor when I get sick now. Healthcare experiences and discrimination reported by people who use drugs in Arizona. It's a, you know, a survey you interviewed about 185 people and asked them about their experiences seeking medical care in uh, Maricopa County. I guess what was the you know the genesis of this survey, and I obviously know what you found, but what what did you discover? Yeah, so it wasn't even me doing the interviews or the surveys because it really the whole idea for this originated in I was uh, co-facilitating the Phoenix Drug User Union meetings, and so we would kind of start every meeting with like agreements and we would ask people, you know, let's, you know, let's all share some good things that happened to each other this month. And like, you know, after that, like, okay, let's talk about some not so good things that might happen or anything we're struggling with and like kind of talk about how we can support each other. And one of the things that would always come up was uh, like just issues, access, trying to access healthcare um, from every, like basic things like you know, chest infections or colds to injection related wounds to even people being hit by cars. That seems to happen so much to people that are outside a lot and unhoused. Well, especially in Arizona. I mean, it's like pedestrians are just like speed bumps in that state. Yes, it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It, and people don't, it's like they literally do not see unhoused people or people like pedestrians, like they're not seen because these cars will run you down. Um, so yeah, every, and uh, that was like a constant thing that was coming up. And uh, one of the things that people suggested as like a solution is like, wow, what if we, like, it's great when we can talk to each other like this. And some months our meetings got up to like a hundred, I think 114 people were like the most that showed up one month. And they started out really small, like eight people. And then they kept growing. And um, it's like a lot of people right before COVID. But um, so it's like, oh, yeah, it's great when we can kind of all talk together and collectively share our knowledge like this. What if we could do like, um, like talk to more people? So we kind of came up with the idea for a survey that we would send out, like have people administer the survey within their own drug using networks. And we had funding as well, which really helps. So we could actually pay people to administer the surveys, pay people to take them. And then we actually brought on uh, Beth Meyerson, Dr. Meyerson from U of A, who's the um, first author on the paper. And she came in and actually helped train, like she just volunteered for free to like train everyone on how to do ethical research, helped us develop the survey. But all the questions and everything on the survey, um, the healthcare questions were only like one segment of it. So there was actually like a ton more stuff in there that's like not in this paper. But that's basically how we came up with the survey. And these are the questions that people that we came up with in the group. So that these are literally the questions in the survey are literally the questions that people who use drugs wanted to ask other people who use drugs about their healthcare experiences. That's that's great. I think that's such an important approach to this kind of thing that, you know, there's that saying nothing about us without us. And like really just taking the people that use drugs and like 
respecting their experience and not being like people people treat drug users or, or people who use drugs as like animals and like that they have no autonomy or, or children or something like that. And it's so I think it's great that this is sort of bringing people in and talking about their own experience. And, you know, in the paper, there's mentions of being denied painkillers, being forced to take laxatives because opioids can cause constipation, I guess. So, oh, you must be on opioids. Let's just force feed you these laxatives. I mean, it's not funny. It's it's really disturbing. And like this one quote that really stood out to me, like uh, the nurses treated me like a freak show and even brought the office workers through my room to gawk at my wounds. Like this is dark stuff, but I think it's really important to kind of highlight that they, it's, it's like once you walk into a doctor's office and you say you use drugs, like their attitude changes immediately. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. And I started to experience that with my leg issues pretty shortly, especially in wound care and trying to access wound care and resources. Um, so sadly, when I read through, um, cause I, you know, I read through all the survey responses, I coded all of them. So I read through them like multiple times and none of them shocked me. Like it was all at this point, very familiar. Like I've heard these stories so many times, similar stories. And I think, you know, we tried to express that in the paper as well. It's not like these are the worst of the worst. This is like very common experience for people who use drugs when they try to access healthcare. I remember with my, with my wounds as well, I've had similar experiences where it's like, I think too, cause I look very, I, I sometimes tell people I'm like the pottery barn of heroin addicts. I think I can like look very square. And then I know when I show doctors my legs, I actually, I feel like I can see the moment in their eyes that they're like, oh, you're one of those. And the, the disgust is like palpable, <laughs> like that you can sense the disgust in the room. So yeah, it's not a good feeling and it doesn't uh, make you uh, eager to go try it again. That's for sure. And it's, it's kind of has this way of perpetuating itself. You know, if you discourage people from seeking healthcare because they use drugs, that, that makes their problems worse, you know? Um, that's definitely all kinds of things in my medical history where I'm just like, I'm going to procrastinate on this because it's embarrassing to get it taken care of or a little scary to address the fact that it's, you know, real or, or I don't have the time or the money. I was like, that's a, that's a huge issue as well. Um, and, and so much of drug use, not all of it. I, I, I really don't like to just compartmentalize it, but a lot of drug use is self-medication. It's, we, maybe we shouldn't call them drug dealers. Maybe we should call them entrepreneurial pharmacists or something, you know, like, yeah. I mean, I think too, it's like, you think about how like the, especially now that I've spent so many years in school, like in, in my program, I read a lot of Foucault and he talks about like the birth of the clinic and how like the hospital, like the genealogy of the hospitals, the hospitals and medical systems have their roots in the prison so like medicine is really another branch of social control. So in many ways, it's like, I think of my own experience trying to access medical care and it's not, especially even like with the COVID thing with my clinic, it wasn't like a singular bad person was mean to me or, or did something bad. It was like all of it, like it's just been set up that way to like not treat us like humans it's like it's a apparatus of dehumanization as they call it, you know, it's so it's, it's just been set up to serve some people well and other others of us uh, not so well. You know, biopolitics 101 there, it's just not, 
just, uh, yeah, it's working the way it was intended, which is not for us. <laughs> yeah, it's intended to extract profit from people. I think one thing that was really good about this survey is that it did not collect information about drug use by participants. And it mentions in the paper that this is not a limitation because the issue is not what type of drugs people use, but the mistreatment they experience. And like, I think that's, that's a really important thing to point out. Yeah. It was, you know, it's interesting because I've noticed that when I've participated on research that is like directed and originates within the academy, the drug histories are like very central and like, cause they have to construct the like drug using subject before they can objectify them. So I like that with the drug users uh, survey, no one really gave a shit to like ask people like what drugs they used and like how long, like that, no one, uh, it never really came up as like a thing that was central to what they wanted to know. And I think especially because it was administered by people who use drugs and were drug user union members, in their own networks. We didn't actually have any surveys that were like, oh, this sounds like, I don't like, I don't know if you'd have to be like, oh, this isn't like a real drug user or something. I mean, I know it's like a very porous category. And even with the union, we never, we did say this is a space for people who are actively using, you know, there's a lot of spaces for people who are trying to stop using or people who are trying to mitigate their use or control it in some way. But like, this is a space for people who are using drugs. But we didn't like kick people out or like, oh, we're going to, you know, hit this, you know, float this tube now or get the fuck out. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, be, having someone scream in your face and call you a junkie and, and treat you like that. Like, I mean, it does it really the drug use is besides the point that it's it's just uh, I think medical malpractice. Well, some of them are weird. Like the one you were talking about with the laxatives, it's like the person's literally there, like reading through these. It's like people are there for everything from being hit by cars to like, you know, health issues that are not even linked to their substance use. But then there's the substance use. And that was in the paper as well is like that with the medical providers, as soon as substance use, like illicit substance use was disclosed, um, that became the primary focus and nothing else, even broken bones and like, you know, like compound, like exposed bones and shit. It's like they're secondary to, oh, drug user. And it's um very odd response. And I think really emphasizes how much like doctors are invested in enforcing drug policy on the bodies of drug users. Yeah, exactly. I don't expect you to know the answer to this or something like that, but you know, maybe you have a good insight on this. Like, how do we address this problem? Like, where do we go from here? I'd, I'd really like to see this changed. And I think it, it needs to be changed because, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to do this to people. It, it costs more money to treat people like crap. And, and if we gave everybody a single pair of healthcare system, we would save so much money. We would have a healthier, more productive society. People live longer, were able to contribute more. They'd go to work more. If that's really what your end goal is, is to make the stock market number go up. But it, I mean, I guess I'm kind of getting off on a tangent, but like, how do we really step in and like start undoing this? I I think about that a lot. Um, I know it even, uh, like you said, a lot of it is people are uncertain of how to pay for medical care. They're even independent of the stigma and like discrimination and abuse, not being able to pay or ending up with massive debt. 
that's going to follow you forever is like a, a totally valid concern that's like forefront in a lot of people's minds when they're ill or need medical help. So like that would be one big step is to make sure that, you know, even like in the UK, they have the NHS, you know, something like that. And then also I think with, I read, cause I follow so much, I mean, I'm following, so I try to follow research that's coming out about drug use and especially health equity and stuff like that. And I get scared when I see that there's a push to have doctors try to screen and identify people for substance use disorders, because if there's these doctors who clearly are not prepared to respond rationally to someone disclosing that they're using illicit drugs, why would they have these same doctors who there's like, this is the only study showing that people use drugs experience like stigma and abuse in medical settings. I mean, it's pretty well documented that it's not, there's a lot of stigma in medical care towards people who use drugs. So you're having those people who aren't responding well um, to drug users start screening even more to like suss them out and identify them probably with not a lot of idea about how to identify between like recreational use and a disorder. So why would you do that? You're just gonna expose more people to trauma and bad healthcare experiences and push people away from trying to access healthcare at all. So I think it just, it needs to be like a structural change in the way that healthcare responds to people who use drugs. Like I think about, especially with all the pain pill prescribing, like hype and stuff, uh, hospitals. And a lot of that is like more because hospitals are worried about their business model and profit. So they're worried about liability for like prescribing pain medications and stuff like that. So they're becoming more, it's more about discipline and less about centering people's needs. So I think just maybe you go to like, it, what would need to happen is to stop enforcing drug policy through medicine. Yeah. I, but I can dream, you know, of a, of a world where we're not enforcing drug policy through medicine yeah I, I it feels kind of far off i was getting really frustrated today just thinking about how far behind we are as a society and in general i guess it's a good caveat to include this like not all doctors are like this not all nurses are like this and it, i see at least on twitter and uh you know some people i talk to a shift in policy people are trying to get into healthcare to become somebody that's a little more progressive on these issues, but I mean, it still seems like a drop in the bucket. It's the whole system that needs to be um, restructured, dismantled really. Yeah, it's, I mean, and yeah, I don't think it's even my clinic. They're not a bad clinic. Um, even the wound care providers that didn't help me <laughs> and still haven't helped me. <laughs> um, it's not that they're bad. They're not bad people. Like the system is just structured that way and they work within that system and they frequently don't take risks to challenge it. Um, so there is like some, I mean, I wanna over-individualize blame. And again, like the not all thing, I think any structural issue, like if you talk about racism, um, you know, the not all white people thing, it's like, we get it, it's not all white people, it's not all doctors, it's a structural issue. Um, but until we're like actively working against these structures that harm people, um, we are complicit in it. So even, even the nice ones, even the nice doctors and nurses, um, they play a role and it like, they'll never even see someone that can't afford to see them. So like right there, like you're playing a role in a system that is excluding people, which is unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. That's really well said. And, and that's why I like talking to you about these issues. Um, 
is there anything else on your mind? Anything related to drugs that you're like, you know, want to rant about a little bit? I think this is an open mic for you. I, I feel like I've ranted for the whole hour. I don't, geez, the healthcare one's just been central on my mind so much just because uh, my own struggle with it and watching other people struggle with it and COVID's just compounded people's fear. But yeah, even for people that don't experience abuse in medical systems, the fear, you're seeing like that fear of the medical system and doctor, like that mistrust is really coming out with just the pressure of the pandemic and probably environmental concerns too. Like you said, it feels like we're in this era of, um, I don't know what you call it, the like Anthropocene, isn't that what the era we're in now is called? Yeah, uh, I guess uh, here's a question. So what is the drug scene in Arizona like right now? Like, are you still um, on the board of Sonoran Prevention Works? Yeah, um, I'm the board chair now as of last month. So it's, uh, you know, we're still doing a lot of Narcan stuff. I would say the drug scene, like, it's definitely because I still, even though I'm not really like using street drugs myself at the moment, you know, I still see them a lot and I help people test them lately with like strips and uh, I would love to get an FTIR. Um, I'm doing a drug testing study with uh, another researcher at ASU um, to try to like develop drug user facing drug testing processes. What's an FTIR? Um, FTIR is like, um, I think it's like Fourier transmission infrared spectroscopy or something. Cause I used to work in a lab. So I never ran FTIR, but it's one of the cheaper analytical instrumentations you could use to do like characterization on um, drugs and find out what they are. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's really important. I spoke to um, Eliza Wheeler a couple months ago and she said, we were talking about naloxone and uh, she's like, there's no state that has uh, good naloxone coverage like it's not saturated in communities enough except for in arizona arizona is the only place that has enough naloxone out there for enough people and i was just like really like i don't know why that was surprising to me but like i'm excited about it because you know i've been adjacent to sonoran prevention works and flooding the streets in naloxone and that's really encouraging it's I mean, Sonoran Prevention Works, like Haley Coles is such a badass, like growing Sonoran Prevention Works out of essentially um, her shed, okay? And like, as you know, you've been connected since the early days with Shot in the Dark. Yeah, she was a guest on this episode about a year ago, and she's also on this paper that we were just talking about a whole bunch. She's completely an inspiration to me. Um, she's great. Yeah, I, I mean... It's to think about like, she's gone from that to like SPW is, you know, huge. And I know we're even trying to change our data systems so that we can better like build the evidence base and actually show, especially because with COVID, we started our naloxone by mail pro program. So we actually have the zip codes where we're sending naloxone out to, so we could see which neighborhoods are saturated and actually see how that influences overdose rates over time. And that would be great to be able to show impact, one, so that we can be more effective in the way that we ensure naloxone is in the hands of people that need it. 
and uh, you know to actually show that peers like peer mutual aid like this actually you know makes a big difference and saves lives, which it, you know it does. But ha having that evidence base keep it solid because as you know harm reduction programs are under attack in a lot of states. So yeah, yeah, and I know Arizona finally after a really long fight um, legalized syringe access programs. And I think fentanyl testing strips around the same time. And how is that going? It's, you know, it's, uh, it's nice because um, at least we, like before, Sonoran Prevention Works could never use funding to pay for syringes. Um, so now we can actually make sure that we, you know, can provide these harm reduction supplies to people that need them and it's not illegal. So like more funding to get resources to people, that's great. The fentanyl test strips are like kind of hit or miss. It seems like in the field, you know, some people really like them, but then they're kind of even like I've worked in a lab, like I'm used to using instrumentation. Well, instrumentation is different than test strips, but they're like so kind of wonky. And I feel not great about telling someone to bet their life on a test strip, some of which are like dubious results and maybe not clear to people how to read them, even with instructions. So it's like, it's just, it would just be great if people could actually test their drugs and get like more, you, they need concentration information. Like what is the concentration? Cause especially with people who use fentanyl, here's fentanyl test strips. Okay. Like they know they're using fentanyl. They need to know concentration. They need to know if it's got contamination with other like NSOs or like weird cut like that would be information that is like very useful and they need to have access to. So um, I'm hoping that will be the next step for um, harm reduction in Arizona is to really, um, you know, try to provide a drug user, like drug user facing drug testing, like they have in Chicago and other places. So, Yeah, I'd like to see that more widespread as well. With the fentanyl test strips, I mean, yeah, fentanyl is in most, it's in most heroin these days. So it's like getting a positive on that test is what's only going to tell you that it's positive. And that's a useful tool, but I think that there are other strategies for like, you know, like taste it, sm snort a little bit of it or that kind of thing, like start small, go slow, just kind of like feel for the, for the cut a little bit. And before you do like your normal dose or something like that. It's interesting. Cause I've noticed that, um, some people who sell it are really, um, interested in getting the test strips because the, you know, some people really want heroin, like they don't want fentanyl, especially people have been using it for a long time. Um, they're not interested in like switching to fentanyl. It doesn't have legs, doesn't have rush. So, you know, people that want heroin, they want heroin. Um, so the people that are buying, you know, a few ounces at a time really want to test it. And I noticed that when they've had different ones sitting next to each other, uh, the fentanyl, some of it just looks weird as hell. Like the fentanyl stuff looks blacker. It looks shardy. Um, whereas heroin is usually powdery and kind of like, you know, you breathe on it and like it gets darker once you breathe on it because it's like brown. And then the the like weird fentanyl that's trying to look like heroin looks more like almost crushed up, um, you know, those root beer candies, but like blacker and just, it looks jank when it's next to the other one. But then if you had smaller amounts, because when we pulled out a little bit after I tested, and the one was had fentanyl, other one, the other bag was like heroin and didn't test positive for the fentanyl. It looked very obvious having the big bags next to each other when it was the little pieces I took a photo of. It's like much harder to tell 
And I imagine if you're buying like a half gram at a time or even like smaller amounts, you're definitely going to have a harder time to kind of like suss out like the hell is this like quickly too if you were trying to fix you're not or you're like sick and you're trying to do it somewhere that's maybe not well lit it's gonna be hard to tell like it, it would be hard to tell at that point um so what's next for you do you have anything coming up no nothing i want to promote i know i'm just i'm trying to do my comprehensive exams right now then i got to do my dissertation so just looking forward to completing my doctoral program i'm excited about that study with the uh, drug testing i'm hoping I mean, you know, we already talked about that though. So I'm hoping that'll lead to some good, uh, like at least help support, you know, having that resource for people here. We'll see, but that, you know, and I remain optimistic. I know, you know, we seemed a little, it's not like a nice topic we talked about, but even despite all of it, I think like you said, if like, if I started, especially start of the year, I thought about how many years I've brought in the new year with my legs like this. And how many years it's been since I've had like a shower and not been in pain, you know, start feeling like very disappointed, especially after being treated by my clinic like that, seeing so many other people treated by doctors like they are, um, I start to get in like a really negative headspace and feeling more, you know, like like despair. Um, But I I guess I do try to like, I don't know, like maybe I'm just straight up deluded about it because I try to focus more on like well, it is what it fucking is what it is, man. I can't, it legs are the way they are and looks like they're going to stay that way. It could be worse. <laughs> well, it was nice to finally kind of meet you virtually. Yeah. Uh, people can find you on Twitter at uh, DopeFiendPhD. Appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, yeah. It was nice chatting. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. If you like the show, you can find us on narcocast.com and support us on our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. There you can get some free stickers or request a shout out on the show. A little goes a long way, so thank you for helping us. But if Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can still help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast and be sure to rate us wherever you get your stuff. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Holly Mangler. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter and all the jazz. This is the best way to contact us should you want to whisper sweet nothings into our ears. We are on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, you name it. And be sure to have a very nice night.